Hola, my name is Gustavo Ariano. I am a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and I'm the author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Gustavo, thank you so much. Uh, it really is an honor to have you on this podcast. You know, we uh, were on the same panel uh, with Francis Lam at Splendid Table, and I heard you talk about the Vietnamese community in Little Saigon, and I, I was like, I have to. Add. I was like, I've always been a fan, but at that <laughs> thank point, you, thank like, you, yeah. So thank you for agreeing to come on. Um, before we start, I, I really want to set the tone here because I uh, have real deep questions about sort of like the way we use pronouns today and all of these other things, but the community of Latinos um, and the idea of Latin X, mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about that and your thoughts about that and how I should address uh, that community's uh, name going forward in this uh, podcast? Yeah, I always tell people, if you want to know how people call themselves, ask them with quote unquote, my people, God, like, Give us a decade, we'll give you a brand new name. We're always mixing around. Like we used to be, we used to think of ourselves as quote unquote Spanish. My parents are from Mexico. So I myself would call myself Mexican, Mexican American, Chicano even. Some of us call us Hispanics. Some people use Latino. Some people use Latin American. Some people recently call Latinx. The X part is this idea that the term Latino, specifically in Spanish, Latino is masculine. And so by using the X, we de-emphasize the masculine part of that word. And we also, um, como se dice, we also embrace people who are gender non-conforming. I personally don't use Latinx. It's not a term that I grew up with. I, if you have to press me, I'll, I'd probably call myself Mexican, even though I was born here in the United States. But if people want to call themselves Latinx, that's cool. If people want to call themselves Latino, that's cool. Hispanic, eh, I don't know about that one. But sure, why not? That's cool too. Well, I, I grew up with Latinos, you know, and I do understand the the idea of demasculinization of the mm -hmm. term. So uh, I think for the for the just for the sake of, you know, um, you know, growing with the community, I, I if I was just start using Latinx on, on this. That's podcast, cool. Yeah. 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 Just so no. And, and I always I always like because, you know, some people are like, oh, you know, that's not even a word in Spanish or I mean, a lot of the subtext is like is homophobic. But what I tell people, it's like, look, we like if you think we only call ourselves Hispanic or we only call ourselves what you think we call ourselves, you're not paying attention to history. And I just think not enough people ever pay attention to history. And also what I do like about Latinx is that it's a new word. I love language. In fact, he here uh, in my, it's not even a podcast studio, it's my personal library, but you can see the background, it's completely packed with books. Right in front of me is a bookcase all about etymology, all about the study of language. I got dictionaries, I have big ass Vietnamese English dictionary right in front of me. I just love language. So if you have Latinx, that's a new word to learn. That's a new word to talk about. Why not? People, you know, People don't have to use it for themselves, but people should at least acknowledge that it's a new word. And guess what? All words are invented. There was no word that, like, I don't know, was born from primordial muck. Maybe not. No, not even mama. Because like because there was there was this idea that like 
a lot of languages, the word for mom is like with the letter M because, um, you know, because, uh, because, uh, como se dice, babies suck on, a, on their mother's breast for milk. But then in Japanese, it's baba. So it's like, what are you going to make? <laughs> are, are you a native son of uh, California's um, Orange County or L.A.? Oh, no, no, no. Nothing against L.A. I love L.A. Don't get me wrong. Um, but born and raised in Anaheim, uh, my great grandpa, my grandpa ended up there in 1918 to pick oranges. So my grandpa and my grandpa was 12 years old. He grew up here. He spent about like a decade or so. And then he moved back to Mexico. That's where he married my grandmother, who was an American citizen, but only because her parents had fled the Mexican Revolution. And uh, she was born in Arizona, grew up here, uh, it, it moved to Corona, stayed there until she was seven. And then they moved back to uh, the state of Zacatecas, where my, both, both of my parents are from. So when my mom migrated as a nine-year-old uh, to Anaheim in the 1960s, it was already home for people from from her village, from, from, her, from her rancho for decades. And so it was cool where I grew up in Anaheim I mean, I'm old enough. I'm 45, but I still remember there were still orange juice factories. So, like, there used to be orange groves all around, but they were still making orange juice just down the street from where we live. So we'd get it from a tin can, and it wouldn't even have the label because, and it had just gotten pasteurized, so it was warm. And like that, that's the one addiction I have in life: orange juice. I can never go without it. So you have seen the influx and the buildup of the Vietnamese community your whole life. Can you tell me a little bit about the early days, your earliest memories of the Vietnamese community getting built up in all around Orange County? Yeah, so in Anaheim, we did not, where I lived in Anaheim, so it was closer to Fullerton, we did not have as many Vietnamese as in Little Saigon, as say some of my friends growing up in Santana, Garden Grove, Fountain Valley, Westminster and all that. But they were there. I mean, I went to St. Boniface Church. It's a Catholic church. And so I, probably my earliest memories would be reading the church bulletin and just seeing, you know, there was the English language mass, which was every single day, Spanish language mass, which was um, morning and, you know, morning, afternoon. And then there would be one Vietnamese language mass and it was Saturday afternoon. And I would think to myself, you know, because... You, you grow up in the United States, and if you're not Vietnamese, your first, unless you grew up with Vietnamese, your first interaction with Vietnamese is Vietnam War. And, the, you know, this is probably elementary school. I probably would have been six or seven. And you don't even know what any of that means other than it's a war and war is bad. And Vietnam is a war that the United States was in. So I just remember thinking like, oh, I wonder what the Vietnamese people like, what are they? Who who are they? So like the junior, the elementary school and junior highs that I went to, I cannot remember any Vietnamese students, but I remember during the church fairs, you know, every, every ethnicity has their booth. So the Mexicans have their booth. Uh, St. Boniface was founded by German immigrants back in the 1860s. So they had their German booth. Filipinos, which was the biggest Asian population at the church had their own booth, and then the, the Vietnamese would have a booth, and going there and eating. So I remember Goi Quan because, you know, I saw these spring rolls, and I'm like, they kind of look like burritos. Let me try them. I'm like, oh, it's like a burrito salad. It's good. I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, 
you know, it's a long departure from those Goikungs at uh, Boniface to Brogard today, right? Oh my God, yeah. So as and so that was really my first interaction through the church, but through food. Like I and I can't remember eating pho. I can't remember eating any of that. But the Goikuan really just stuck with me because it seems so familiar with me. You know, it was like familiar yet quote unquote foreign at the same time because we don't use rice paper at least in our part of Mexico. Uh, but we like carrots. We don't use fish sauce, but we do use, um, you know, fermentation in some of our food. So it was kind of familiar. Then flash forward to uh, high school, Anaheim High School. And that's when I started noticing like, oh, like we have some Vietnamese students. Like the big population in Anaheim of Asian students were actually Hmong. Like I, I remember growing up with Hmongs and Laotians. Um, and then there were some Vietnamese and again, you'd have during the like international day, they they would wear their audai, mm -hmm. uh, they would bring their food, and they were cool. I mean, there was one, uh, there was one guy. His name was Fung. Fung was cool people, uh, and he became he wasn't he wasn't like a buddy buddy, but he was definitely like in our outer circle of friends. So we would hang out. Like you know, we're high schoolers. We're not really talking about our cultures per se. We're not, you know. Uh, we, we were just getting along. We were also, the other thing that, that united us, uh, in my circle at least, we're, we were all nerds. So it's like, we don't see any color because everyone hates us because we're all nerds. This episode is brought to you by Red Boat Fish Sauce. I love cooking with Red Boat because it's made with only two ingredients, wild-caught anchovies and sea salt. This premium fish sauce is made in Phu Quoc, Vietnam and bottled right here in California. You can find Red Boat at select Asian supermarkets like 99 Ranch, H Mart, and Tong Fak. And and from that point, sort of like you you go to high school and you start seeing all these Vietnamese restaurants pop up in Little Saigon. Do you remember in the early days which ones were your sort of your favorite ones or your standout ones? Oh, I, I remember the very first one I ever went to. So I go to I then I go to college, Ch uh, Orange Coast College, see a couple more Vietnamese students there. Don't really befriend any though, because I, you know. It's community college, it's commuter. Go to Chapman University. I don't really remember that many students because it's a small private college, but right after I graduated from Chapman, I got a Vietnamese American girlfriend. Uh -huh. And so she, yep, uh -huh, the, the, it would have been a beautiful, it would have been such a quintessential Orange County romance. It didn't work out, but it was fine. But she, the very first Vietnamese restaurant she introduced me was Lee's Sandwiches. And Lee's, I remember it was just such a revelation. Again, going to this idea of similarities yet differences. So, you know, a, a bun me is just a torta. You know, we Mexicans, we get big, fluffy French rolls and we stuff them with meats that we like or we stuff them with vegetables that we like. And seeing it at Lee's, even I mean, and I remember when the very first Lee's opened, the one off of Bolsa right there, uh, not too far away from the Asian Gardens Mall, there was lines out the door. And, and my girlfriend at the time explained to me like, oh, they're not from here. They originally, it's a family from San Jose, but it's very popular in the diaspora. And they're not the best uh, bun mis, but, you know, they're good. They're a good way to introduce people to it. So I remember eating them. You know, I got, it was, which, which ones were they? The... Uh, banh mi chai, so um, the tofu one, the uh, Chinese pork one. I've never been a fan of pate, but I tried it as well. And I just remember thinking, 
oh my God, these are so delicious. And then what really got me was the price because granted, we're talking about 2001. So everything is more expensive now. But I remember even then, uh, like a bun me was probably like a buck 20, no, a buck 50, buck yeah. 75. And then I remember, you know, once I got into her circle of friends, uh, her friends who grew up in Little Saigon, they're like, oh, they're too expensive now. We remember when it was 75 cents. And even then, a torta would have been $3, $4. So thinking, me thinking to myself, how is it that, you know, a sandwich this big on a baguette? So, you know, baguette is similar to a French roll. We both got our breads from the French anyways. I was just so, going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it was still like, it was delicious in its own way. So I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is really good. And then the second place that we went to, it would have been Ban Mi Chekali because... I wanted, I like sweets. So I told her, okay, so I got these great sandwiches. How about dessert? I want to try dessert. And so she took me there and I just remember falling in love with one very specific jab. It was something with, I think it was just like milk, uh, coconut milk or condensed milk with mung beans. Mm. Like the simplest thing, yeah. but I had never had sweets like that because it wasn't super sugary. It was savory in a way. Yeah. But it had this sweet earthiness to it. And after that, and at that same time, that's when I was starting out to be a food critic. Uh, so I just remember telling my bosses at the time, like, hey, like, can you let me try these Vietnamese foods and just like try to see what's going on? And yeah, the rest, as they say, is history. You know, this idea of pricing, you know, we managed a few, a handful of restaurants, fine dining establishments now in America. But the Vietnamese uh, fine dining scene is not as robust as maybe the Japanese um, restaurants. Why do you think that is? It's the same reason for Mexicans as well. I mean, in recent years, you have had a trend toward higher end Mexican restaurants. Like I'm thinking, uh, you know, uh, West Avila's uh, whole product, you know, starting with Gorilla Tacos, although he doesn't have that anymore. Taco Maria, which no longer exists, uh, Carlos Salgado. But, you know, Vietnamese like Mexicans. And as I started in my journalism career, I started seeing even those more of those parallels. We're, uh, you know, a lot of us had to leave everything. So we came to the United States with nothing. You grew up in working class areas. And so when you're working class, you don't really aspire to uh, or, you know, when it comes to food, you just want to go to what's affordable. If you want to go to something fancy, you know, <laughs> I would see Vietnamese going to French restaurants, uh, us Mexicans, we'd go to Norm's because for my dad, like a New York steak is like the epitome of high dining. You drown it in A1 sauce, but it's like so not Mexican that you think, oh, this is this is amazing. This is luxurious. And you don't really think of your cuisine as high dining you don't think of your cuisine as being worthy of going down and dressing nice and paying a lot of money for that and far from it you think your cuisine should always be cheap and you don't question that and in fact if anyone if your food is not cheap then you think oh this can't be real oh this can't be fake oh who are you trying to be you're trying to put on airs uh, you know, when you're no, you're nothing more than a Mexican or a Vietnamese. And that's not a healthy way of seeing the food ecosystem. But that's how it was like my good friend, Diep Tran, you know, her family's behind uh, was it Fuss 78? No, Fuss 75 uh, or 79. One yeah. of those, I forget. Um, 
but she's written about like she says like oh you could blame my family for introducing the idea of cheap vietnamese food because basically we exploited our own family members making a and herself included working for free when that's not really the best way to you know yeah. operate a restaurant yeah i i completely agree but i think there's maybe something a little bit more nefarious going on internally and externally which is the branding of the culture when you think about french or italian or japanese you think that there are these luxury markets in the handbags you think about it in the fashion you think about it in the cars that they've designed and then you think about i don't know it is it as dark as like we don't as a in the world we don't think of the vietnamese or the mexicans as sort of having these abilities to reach this luxury class and therefore doesn't translate into fine dining high prices i that of course that as well and i think part of it is american culture looking down i mean look uh, uh, american culture has looked down on mexican culture what 180 years at this point but just because we share a border with the united states you know the uh, mexico and the united states share a border with vietnamese you know that that relationship really starts with the Vietnam War. And then when you do have Vietnamese refugees coming into the United States, Americans just loathe them. Like they, you know, and you could obviously speak to this far better than me, but just from an outsider's perspective, I always saw Americans in those first couple of decades seeing Vietnamese as a reminder of the fact that uh, they shouldn't have done the Vietnam War, that they, it was just a disaster and they killed so many innocent people. And here's these Vietnamese trying to re, uh, you know, start a new life in the United States. And so you had all these stereotypes of, oh, Vietnamese are, you know, welfare seekers or they cheat the system or they're boat people and all of that. And so because of that, and also you just have the general uh, antipathy that the United States has had to Asian culture in general, even when they think of it as refined, like Japanese culture. And the United States has always thought of Japanese being different from the rest of Asia, like somehow being more elevated. There's still that yellow peril part that's always going to inform how the United States treats Asian American cuisine, Asian American culture, even as they slowly start cons to consume it more and more and more. And I think with Vietnamese, we're we're still really just fi about 50 years into a full relationship between Vietnamese and Americans in the United States and the fact that it's happening in Orange County, that puts it on a whole other level that I, I that I don't think we'll really be able to start getting into until maybe in 20 years when we could really reflect and think like, okay, we've gone through this far. How far have we gotten? How much, how much more do we have to go? Hmm. Yeah, I uh, ponder about this all the time because when I think about Vietnamese food, I think about the labor, the intensity of of the process it is on some dishes surpasses the labor intensity of japanese food or french cooking you know but the but the prices are still not at, it doesn't reflect what it what it should be oh i mean look at pho how long does it take to cook pho you know exactly. how long do, how long does it take to cook menudo we, you know the the french kitchen nothing against french food i like it it's a little bit too rich for me but i still like it um i like italian food better but French cuisine is lionized as the height of cuisine because of all these techniques that you have to use. In fact, any chef that goes into culinary school anywhere in the world, uh, but especially in the United States, you have to use 
French techniques. You learn Escoffier. You put on the, what do they call it? The toque or that like little poofy chef's hat. You learn how to do all these sauces and whatnot. I want to know when these classes are going to start incorporating like, okay, how do I make a great fish sauce? How do I simmer down those beef, that the, the beef bones and the meat to make a, and then put in the star anise and all these other things to make an amazing broth of pho. Like when we get to that point, and by the way, we should get to that point, then I'll say, okay, we're getting the respect that we deserve. Vietnamese food is getting the respect that it deserves. Mexican food uh, will get the respect that it deserves. But we're not at that point yet. And, uh, and honestly, I think Mexican food is more, it's finally starting to get more appreciated just because of the ubiquity. And again, the longer relationship for better or for worse between Mexicans and Americans. So now people do see Mexican food as like this heightened cult, uh, uh, culture of cuisine. Whereas Vietnamese food, look, like I love traveling around the country and I love seeing like the one pho place like in well, Albuquerque has a couple more, but like, where was I in the South? It was like this one pho place. I'm like, oh man, I have to go. But I, I wonder what that story is. So pho is here in Orange County, it's just like mother's milk at this point. Yeah, yeah. But pho is slowly starting to percolate in the American consciousness, but we're not there just yet. And I don't think we'll be there for at least another 15 years. Wow. Why, why do you think it takes so long? Just numbers. I think numbers. I also think you haven't, in the United States, you've, I mean, you've had people like Dieppe Tran, you uh, definitely, but you really haven't had in my mind that like, uh, you know, like your Aaron Sanchez's. Again, th uh, there has been celebrity Mexican chefs in yeah. the United States or celebrities doing their own Mexican food like Bobby Flay and uh, Rick Bayless and all these. This has been going on now for a century. With Vietnamese food, I think like our higher, like our more famous chefs, they, I mean, you would know this more, like I don't really see any shout outs or acknowledgements, yeah. not in the way that you do see for other cuisines. And this is the United States. We're, we're a consumer culture and we're a celebrity culture. And if there's one celebrity that, you know, uh, lifts up a particular anything, then other people will start following it. I mean, probably the most famous Vietnamese export or, you know, the, the, what's most associated with Vietnamese food is sriracha. And I think rightfully so. Like, I mean, I remember when there was that Simpsons episode where they give a shout out to Sriracha. I'm like, oh my God, that is so cool. And yet it seems kind of, uh, not, not uh, you know, uh, what's the term? Uh, superfluous, but also just all for show. Um, but it's important when, when these, uh, you know, when these little artifacts of our cuisine or these uh, touchstones really start percolating up into the bigger American consciousness, then that's when it opens up the American mind and the palate to try more things. And, and the word I was looking for was surface level. Like Sriracha on The Simpsons seems like surface level, but I would argue it's deeper than that. But, but you know, Sriracha is not even really Vietnamese yeah. in a way that it's... Uh... You know, I think before it was, it came on the American market, I, I don't recall it being so strong in the Vietnamese uh, lexicon or that, well, sriracha is a, really a Thai word, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that that in itself is strange. And um, it's not particularly, like when you think of Thai or Vietnamese food, they have that chopped chili. Uh, and, and it's, 
you know, it's it's blazing hot. Oh God, the, the bird pepper is all pickled. Yeah. I love that stuff. And the sriracha is like a blended, like a finely blended paste almost that is, um, you know, kind of like everywhere now. You see it in sushi restaurants. You see it all over Thai foods, Vietnamese foods, Chinese food a lot. So it's everywhere. It's kind of become like America's ketchup, right? Yeah. And yeah, America's ketchup that 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 caters to this spicy uh, profile. But at, at, at the same time, it's like, it's not, you know, it's it's made by a Vietnamese man, but even his I I this is so controversial. <laughs> <laughs> this is like so controversial to talk about. It, it for me, I felt like it's not. It was never sort of like in the plan to really be bold and say, you know, this is a Vietnamese thing because it's it's not. It's like you know, it takes its root in Thailand and you know, the name, and it's so bizarre to me, but it's done by a Vietnamese man that that created that sauce so it's very you, you get sadly in the United States at first you get you take the wins that you can get yeah that's a good one yeah you take the wins <laughs> that you can get now speaking of wins we'll, we'll come back to food I I really uh want to talk about this idea of investigative reporting that you do because the, it, it covers a lot of things in the Vietnamese and Latinx communities that that you live in but before we get to that, I want to even get to the courage. Where do you find the courage to speak the truth and write about the truth? Um, and I, I've read plenty of articles and columns that you've written that I'm just shocked. I'm like, wow, like you just went there. And I always ask this question to to journalists, like, where do you find that power to just say, you know, I'm just going to go for it? Yeah, I I think it goes back again to being a nerd. When uh, when you're a nerd and everyone looks down on you and makes fun of you and picks on you, you get a big chip on your shoulder. And I'll always say I have a chip on my shoulder. I don't let it weigh me down and I don't let it blind me. But I came into journalism completely by accident. I quickly realized even in this day and age, being a journalist allows you to tell stories that other people don't want to tell that and it gives you a platform that allows your stories to be read, consumed, listened to, watched by a big audience. And not everyone can be a journalist because as you said, it does take, it takes a certain amount of courage. It takes a certain amount of <laughs> uh, not giving a damn about anything. And you just throw yourself out there. And I apparently early on, I had a knack for it. I don't want to say a talent, but I had a knack for it. And yeah, I've been doing it now for 24 years. And and more than anything, though, I guess the, the so the courage just comes from my own personal background. But the fuel for it comes from my curiosity about the world, knowing that there's so many stories out there wanting to know about them. And as I go out and find these stories, realizing that not enough of our stories of communities of color, of working class communities not enough of them get told by by the mainstream media historically. And of course, now the mainstream media is basically dead. And you see a lot of people having their own podcasts, using TikTok, using Instagram, and telling stories. And I'm glad for that. But I also think what's lost in a lot and too much of like, uh, como se dice, creator, uh, a creator culture is that they don't try to connect the dots. And that's one thing I've always tried to do through food journalism, through investigative reporting, saying, hey, you think you're unique here? 
well, actually, there's this other thing right here. And if only those two sides met, mm -hmm. then you would know about each other. And then you'd have a better society, better, a stronger society. Call me uh, naive, but that's how I've always believed my journalism can be most effective. It's crazy you just said that because what you're saying on this side, this side, bringing it together is how I feel about the narrative of Vietnam as the diaspora and Vietnam from the homeland. Obviously, mm -hmm. you know that there's a big, um, you know, <laughs> there's a chasm there about oh, conversation yeah. because uh, the communist government, because of the South Vietnamese government, uh, survivors, people in our parents' generation that, so we are not allowed to talk and write openly and freely. We always have to measure what we say. And I'm so, so damn tired of it sometimes. And you know, when I read pieces that you write, uh, you know, recently about the, um, you know, the, the way the established uh, Latinx Chicano community feels about, you know, the the undocumented Mexicans yeah. that are coming in, you know, these are two very different communities. And I feel like I'm, you know, I'm in the, I live in the middle of these uh, communities of, uh, you know, in the Vietnamese community where there's two you know, there's two groups of, 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 of governments and two groups of ways of, of thinking. And then I wish I could talk more openly and freely and just like go for it. But I'm so afraid of backlash and, and sometimes, you know, being hurled comments that I cannot answer. Yeah, uh, the original cancel culture, right? Yeah. Your, your, your own cultures. Uh, look, Mexicans, we have this as well. Absolutely. Um, we, we know, I, I, I especially think when you do come from migrant communities especially even refugee communities because you know there's always you know the the cheap and easy parallel to the vietnamese experience uh, to latinos has been the cuban american experience you know uh, countries taken over by communist regimes diasporas having to spread out a nostalgia for the homeland a hatred a rightful hatred for the government for the dictators and regimes that left behind but then the second and third generation have to wrestle with that yes. and I, I think what needs I I think that if you have if you it's like that saying nowadays if you see something wrong say it if you like there and not everyone can do it but there are those people who again and I think you need both a calling but also a talent to be able to deal with all the hate that's gonna come your way like I'm used to hate I've been dealing with hate my entire life one way or another so. If people want to say, oh, I'm a sellout, I'm this and that, it, it rolls off my, you know, it, it rolls off my uh my back, like what what what's this thing? Duck off of water's back or whatever. Yeah. Um, but there has been people who have um written about the Vietnamese, a journalist, like my late friend uh, Vu Win, he used to be at OC Weekly and he wrote amazing, amazing stories. He was only at OC Weekly for a couple of years, but I remember during the high-tech protests, he wrote a, a beautiful essay that still taught in Asian American studies classes called Why I Hate Ho Chi Minh. And he was a punk rocker. He was, you know, politically from the left, more conservative, or rather, yeah, politically from his left, although his dad was um, a, a deputy, uh, what did he call him? Deputy district director, I think, for uh, former state senator Joe Dunn. So he came from a Democratic family, but he was more to the left. But he wrote this essay talking about this is why you know, as Americans are wondering, like, why are there thousands of people protesting outside of, uh, uh, you know, a video store just yeah. because someone hangs a picture of Ho Chi Minh? Don't they believe in freedom of speech? Blah, 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 blah. 
Vu's like, yeah, we believe in freedom of speech, but this is why we're angry. This is why people are pissed off. And he just laid it all out. Um, he went into mainstream journalism. I think if he would have stayed at the OC Weekly, like sort of a rebel voice, I think he would have had so much more like uh, interrogation of the Vietnamese American experience, both the good and the bad. And I think that's where you need, I mean, you have SAS, you have writers, of course, talking about that. But I do think you need a reporter, like you need that re reportorial lens, because as a reporter, the best reporters, I'm not saying I'm one of them, but the best reporters are skeptical of everything. Yes, you have your beliefs. Yes, you have your biases, but you have to check them all the time. Mm. And when you realize something is not right here, you have to call it out for better, for worse. We share roots as, I don't know if it's former Catholics, current Catholics. <laughs> forever Catholic. I'm forever, forever Catholic, Catholic, but I don't, I don't go to damn church. Hell no. Forever Catholics. Uh, we share this love-hate relationship with the Catholic Church. I mean, on one end, the community and the community of faith is something that I believe in. I really uh, have a lot of love and respect for my mother and father for bringing me into that world. And it, it really helped shape my, my youth and who I am today because of the Catholic the strong Vietnamese Catholic community mm -hmm. in Southern California really shaped my 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 persona, and it shaped the way I approach society. But at the same time, when I look and I read what you've written about the molestation and all of the crazy shit that you write about, it's just I, I I'm at a loss of 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 how this is all playing out in all the communities, the Latinx community, the Vietnamese uh, Catholic communities. I, I want to hear your thoughts on on this sort of relationship with the 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 church that that you grew up in and, and probably feel the same way I do. Yeah, I always say when immigrant groups first come to the United States, the first two places that they open is a house of worship, whatever your religion may be, and a place to go eat. And usually it's a church basement at first, but then someone opens up a market or something to do that. And so, you know, if you're Mexican, especially uh, from small villages, the church is your entire life. So like I said, I first encountered Vietnamese at St. Boniface in Anaheim. I went through all the sacraments, uh, you know, uh, Reconciliacion, uh, First Communion, Confirmation. I attended Mass. And then 20 years ago, uh, well, yeah, 20 years ago, basically, I started reporting on these stories about how it wasn't just that there was pedophile priests who were preying on boys and girls, but that there were church leaders who knew about this, these molestations, and not only did nothing about them, in other words, they didn't turn them over to law enforcement, the offenders, they would move them yeah. to poor parishes in Orange County. And just, you know, and it was heartbreaking to me. But again, it's like, how could I stay silent when I have facts in front of me? And I lost friends. I lost uh, people that I, you know, women that I try to go out with uh, did not want to go out with me anymore because they said I was anti-God and anti-church. But as, you know, as the decades go on, I tell people I'm not against the Catholic. I'm not against the faith. I'm not against God. I'm not against the Virgin Mary, Our Lady right. of La Vang, La Virgen yeah. de Guadalupe, any of that. I'm against men who know these crimes and do nothing about them. You can, you should be able to separate the faith from the people who, the men, and it's men, it's men, 
the men who run it. And if you're not, and if you don't want to criticize those men, well, I feel bad for you, but I cannot support a system and a parish community that does not, uh, you know, protect chase those. Yeah. Chase, well, not just protect the innocent, but chase the bad people out the door. You know, the, the hard part about podcasting is like trying to track what you just said. Cause you just, act <laughs> like it, I, I do not want to get uh, lost. Uh, Unspool I, it I, all. I, you said Lavang and Guadalupe, but we got to go back to those two because those are awesome parallels that you just brought up. So, but we're on this uh, uh, parish priest uh, track. So, but God, you got to please remind me because th that's a really good point. I wanted to bring that up later. Um, this idea of these men, why do you think the church protects? Why do you think the policy throughout the entire world is to protect these monsters? I've always wondered that. When you have, when you join a bureaucracy, the main point of the bureaucracy is to protect itself, to keep itself sustaining. And look, that's what the Catholic Church is famously so. I mean, the Catholic Church famously modeled itself after the Roman Empire, which the Roman Empire was all about bureaucracy. You look at how the church is, you have your parishes, you have your priests, you have your monsignors, bishops, cardinals, you have all these different people, all these different dioceses. And so just on the fundamental level, bureaucracies are going to protect themselves. I also think the church uh, saw, it, saw these saw these molestations as humiliating and disgusting. I've, I've never said they've condoned them. They find them disgusting and all that. And I think then, though, they did not want to expose themselves to uh, uh, law enforcement. They did not want to expose themselves for more questions. And so what you had with church leaders is just this tendency to circle the wagons around themselves and protect the people. And, you know... The, the church would send these uh, uh, pedophile priests to treatment centers to, you know, uh, to try to work out their issues. But they never rarely would they ever call law enforcement. Rarely would they ever call law enforcement. They see, and that, that that's the mystery to me. What, why? How difficult is it just to expel and like be done with it? Right. In my head, it's like or is there a scarcity of men going getting into the vocation and. To, to train each of these guys costs thousands, maybe <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars to put them all through seminary. And it just costs so much. And we can't like, it's hard enough to get them there. It's how do we, well, we can't get rid of them because there are free labor in, in, in our management. A lot of the, the, the heyday of molestation, so to speak, happened when the, there was no, uh, there was no shortage of men trying to enter the priesthood. Now there is definitely, but I mean, you see the same thing with a public education where, you know, I have not just reported on the Catholic church sex abuse scandal. I've also reported on school districts here where you'd have teacher. I mean, notoriously teachers who are accused, I don't know if they still do it anymore, but they used to teachers who are accused of molestation or whatever, they wouldn't be fired. They wouldn't be hired. They would be put into a room. Like they would go to quote unquote school, be in a classroom all day and be there for weeks, months, sometimes even years because these school districts are like, well, you're one of us. We got to take care of you. And again, we don't. We do not want to. And and I also think again, it's just the publicity. The church thought that they could hide all of these things, and it would probably be easier and cheaper because if they hid all these molestations, if they hid all these problem priests, then they would not have to pay out lawsuits. And of course, 
what ends up happening you have what's happening right now you have dioceses filing Bankrupt. for bankruptcy because they cannot afford all the settlements that are coming at them by people who were molested decades ago and uh defenders like you know the writer dies of the catholic church will say like oh it's not fair that these people who say they were molested 40 years ago are collecting money now because that's not the church today okay it might not be the church today there are far more um uh guards uh against uh, you know uh, yeah guards against molestation and uh planks to be able to protect children against that but the fact is You still have to pay. This is only 40 years ago. This is within the generation. Some of these priests are still alive, still retired, and they've never had to face a jury. They've never had to face any sort of... Uh, consequences. Yeah, con consequences or uh, you know, the, the come to Jesus moment, so to speak. They, they've never had to face the choir, so to speak. Yeah, and it's now backfiring in a way that's... Uh... That's Crushing. messing up. Yeah, that's messing up younger Catholics. And then you create this disillusionment. The only people that the Catholic Church has to blame for its sex abuse scandal are its leaders, not yeah. the faithful. Definitely not God and Jesus and the saints, Jesus, Mary and the saints, but the leaders and the leaders still don't get it. And I don't know if they ever will. There's, I mean, Pope Francis has been great. Yeah, uh, there's him. some. Yeah, yeah there, there's other bishops that have been great, but then they get castigated as too liberal by yeah. other <laughs> other Catholics. What are you? It's do? crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. And and I think Francis is doing a great job straddling between the conservative communities and the progressives. You know, he's doing a great job. You could see the struggle, what kind of language he has to use to kind of appease both both sides. You know, I I, I think um you know I, it breaks my heart when I think about my mother because. On the one hand, I know she would love to see me return to the Catholic Church. Yeah. On some level, I I view Catholicism almost like a Marvel, you know, Marvel Disney sort of uh, huh. string of of, of 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 tales to to help us, like Aesop fables, to help mankind understand the morality and and ethics, uh, you know, direction that we need in our lives. But at the same time, it's like to put your faith that these stories were real at one point in the history of mankind it's a little bit shaky to me but uh you know for what it's worth i i, I learned a lot of my morality and and distinct mm -hmm. judgments uh on how to kind of like conduct myself through these uh these stories yeah oh i i still i subscribe to the daily missile from the united states wow. conference on catholic bishops and it's funny because i read it and it's just like how I used to read the missile when we'd go to church, um, you know, when I was a kid. So sometimes I read the the first reading because especially if it's stories from the Old Testament, because I was like the, the, the stories. I never read Paul because I always found Paul boring. All these letters and lecturing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the how do you say it in English? The psalm that you respond to in Spanish, you say Salmo Responsorial. Right. But I always, and to this day, the one part I always read is the gospel because you don't have to believe Jesus was God, right. but you read his words. Oh my exactly. God, so much wisdom. And then you just read Jesus as a, as a person, as a character. Oh man, he's what getting mad at people. He's yeah. a savage. He's yelling at people. He's, he's trashing his own followers saying, oh, ye of little faith and all of that. So that's that's how I still connect. Like I love the lessons that I learned from Jesus and I love more 
what he represents at the end, what does he re represent? The truth shall set you free. That's number one. Number two, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Number three, powerful people, always be skeptical of them. More likely than not, they're evil. They're bad. And then the, the most important thing, I think, especially for this society, repent. We are all sinners. We all do bad stuff. Admit to your sins. And also, though, give people a chance. Give people a chance to repent. Give people a chance to be able to better themselves. And I just think in this society, we, especially that last part, we always lose sight of it because we yeah. always we always think we're right. And we think that anyone who's not right is a fool. And we don't give that, and maybe they are a fool, but we don't give that person the chance to try to realize that, hey, maybe I'm wrong. But more importantly, we never even consider that we could possibly be wrong. We as individuals can possibly be wrong about anything. The homie Jesus Christ has never <laughs> said anything wrong. I mean, if you really analyze all the text, he's never, I mean, whether he was a real figure or, or a consolidation of a many words. figures, he, you know, and, and I always go back to this. It's like, no matter what you do, what you practice, what denomination you're from, mm -hmm. it was very, it's very simple, but very hard to do. God is love. So yeah. in other words, if you forget everything that canonical Catholicism, canonical, you know, the the uh, church uh, tribunals, the 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 councils that created the the books, the New Testament, if you forget about all that, all you have to remember every day is when you bump up against another human being, are you treating them with love? That rule is very difficult to follow, period. It's just very difficult to do. So you don't need all the bells and whistles. You just need the community and you need love. And I think that for me uh, to distill it all down, it all boils down to that for me. It's like, do we love the community that we're a part of? Do we love the outside different communities that come that are adjacent to our communities? And that itself is sort of, I think, um, that's the most Christ-like thing to do. Yeah. And, I, and then I think the Catholic part of me then says, okay, so you have faith in good. You have faith in love. Is that necessarily going to make you a better person? Not for me. For me, it's also salvation by works. It's like, okay, so if I'm going to love, am I just going to say, I love you, cool, you're awesome, to someone who needs help, to a community who needs help? No, I'm going to be out there and try to help in my own way. The talent that I have or the yeah. ability to be specific that I have is I'm able to write. I'm able to tell stories. I'm able, I'm also a professor or lecturer at Orange Coast College. So I'm able to do that. I'm able to help in my specific field, young journalists go to that next level. In my community, I'm able to tell stories that need to be told. And so, again, I'm not perfect by any sense of the imagination, but at least I'm trying. And I'm not trying to be perfect. I'm trying to better myself. But more than anything, I'm also trying to better my community by giving what I can. Let's uh, return back to Lavan and... Guadalupe, yeah, yeah. There's so uh, there, there's so many parallels there. The beautiful part is the sort of the adaptation of our cultural sort of aesthetics uh, with uh, Dikme, Lavang, and Our Lady of Guadalupe. Can can you tell me about what you know because you brought those two uh, <laughs> signifiers up? Well, again, early on in Saint Boniface, you learn that every particular Catholic community coming from a country. They have their own traditions, their own saints. Obviously, Mexico is a huge country, so we have a lot of 
uh, apparitions of the Virgin Mary. Uh, the most famous one, of course, is La Virgen de Guadalupe, but we also have La Virgen de San Juan de los Lagos, uh, Nuestra Señora de Zapopan, uh, all, all across Mexico. We're, we're a huge country. But you then learn, for instance, uh, Filipino, oh, and, and like Filipinos, Filipinos believe in the Santo Nino, mm -hmm. uh, which I have the Santo, you can't see it here, but behind me, I have a big statue of the Santo Nino and, uh, you know, the Holy Child, uh, the infant Jesus and Mexicans, specifically from my part of Mexico, Zacatecas, we believe in the Santo Nino de Atocha. So that's how that's how I connected with my Filipino uh, friends immediately. Just, oh, yeah, you guys believe in Santo Nino? Oh, cool. And then again, uh, with Vietnamese, I learned very quickly about Our Lady of Lavang. Look, at the end, it's La Virgen Maria. It's the Virgin Mary all yeah. across the board. But the Virgin Mary, she comes to the communities that need her with the language and with the looks and with and at the time that the community most needs her. So learning about Our Lady of Lavang early on, I'm like, oh, that's cool. So the Virgin Mary is not just Mexican, but she's also Vietnamese as well. Like, okay. That's really, really cool. So when, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, when in, in Santana, there was our, our Lady of Lavang church opened up. I know there was some controversy around it, but in my mind, it's like, look, there's there's a lot of even the Guadalupe churches in um, in Orange County. It's okay to have one Our Lady of Lavang. Frankly, there should be more. And now at, um, the cool thing, again, as Vietnamese culture or Vietnamese folks, um be proud of their heritage and are not afraid to just keep it amongst themselves. At St. Boniface now, there was always a statue of La Virgen de Guadalupe outside, but now there's a statue of Our Lady of Lavang outside as well. It was, got, it was put up in the last oh. decade. And then it's what's really cool to me. So almost every, before the pandemic, my wife and I, we would take a huge road trip all the way down to Kentucky to Tennessee. I, I love bourbon. I love bluegrass. I love exploring food. So I, I love Southern food and I would just go out there and then on the way back, we'd stop in Albuquerque and then we'd go up about an hour and a half to, it's called El Santuario de Chimayo. So it's this place where that, that has holy dirt. People believe that the dirt that they get from this particular shrine, where there's a shrine to El Santo Niño de Atocha, that it has curative powers. So when I started going there about 15 years ago and it was really small, out there, new Mexican Catholic culture goes back centuries, so it's its own deal. But then it's this place has become more and more famous. So over the past, when I went there was last time I went was 2019. Might have, yeah, it was 20, yeah, it was 2019. Um so Vietnamese Catholics put up enough money to be able to uh build a big statue of Our Lady of Lavan. So now whenever, whenever I would go there, oh, I'd see, <laughs> I'd see like uh, high schoolers wearing a, a sweatshirts from La Quinta High School or Westminster. And so now it's becoming a shrine of a pilgrimage for Vietnamese Catholics from Orange County and from across the diaspora all the way to this little shrine in Albuquerque. And right next to Our Lady of Lavang there is, of course, another uh, statue that's been there far longer for Our Lady of Guadalupe as well. That's so, so fascinating to hear these two statues existing side by side on the same property. It's fascinating to think about. And it's important for us to realize, like, yeah. look, yes, we are two different countries. We are two different cultures. We are two different experiences. 
but we have a lot of similarities. And I think the more we can talk about those similarities and the more we can um, realize these things, the far better both of our communities will be, the, the stronger our communities will be. Um, I th I still think, especially in Orange County, it might be different than San Gabriel Valley. I, can, I, I, do, I do have family in La Fuente and Pomona, but I can't say that I know too much about uh, like the Vietnamese Mexican relationship there, but I know in Little Saigon, sometimes it has been, you know, it has been filled with tension. I think it's a lot of, you know, stereotypes on both ends. And I always find it sad as someone who's been able to navigate, you know, be part of one culture and totally respect and uh, admire the other culture. There needs to be more of that connection. And it's always with the young, the young people, the youth, they're the ones who make it happen. It's us olds who <laughs> kind of uh, don't do the job that we should. That's so funny. Um, you know, you, you wrote a book called How Mexican uh, Food Conquered America. And I, I thought the word conquered was a very, <laughs> very intentional word. And I, I thought about like, if Vietnamese food can conquer America, I was like, how would that look? I mean, how did you, what was the premise and the thesis of your book to say how Mexican food conquered America? And I'm like trying to always think, parallels in, in, in terms of like, how could Vietnam, Vietnamese people adapt that sort of thinking? Yeah, that mentality. Go conquer that food, man. Go <laughs> go conquer those stomachs. It's a good thing to do. I started by just doing a history of Mexican food in the United States because it had never been written before. And so I wanted to show how prevalent, the, not, to, not just how prevalent Mexican food is because you have Mexican restaurants all over the United States of all sorts of styles, uh, regional fast food, combo plates, all sorts of style. But I wanted to show like, no, it's deeper than this. And when I started the book, I did start under the uh, assumption that before the 1960s, when you started uh, seeing a loosening of migration uh, laws, that Mexican food was only popular in the American Southwest. And I quickly realized that wasn't the case. Basically, by the 1880s, Americans were obsessed with Mexican food and were making it into the success that it is today. And so with my book, I try to like pinpoint like there, there's foods. Yeah, you think of them as Mexican, but really they're also Americans. Tacos at this point are American burritos with chipotle, curabas, all these chains, like they're, they're, they're a more recent arrival in the world of Mexican food to the United States, but they're becoming increasingly American. Uh, hot sauce, hot, you know, hot sauce overtook ketchup as Americans, America's top selling condiment in 1994. So uh, hot sauce is now American, basically, but also just these ingredients that we don't even think about where their provenance is. They're also Mexican as well. Chocolate, vanilla, corn, um, amaranth, um, you know, the other like tequila, uh, beer. I think Corona's now the top selling beer in the United States. So as the decades go along, our our consumption, American consumption increasingly becomes more and more Mexican. And I think what it's the way it started, at least for Mexicans, it could also happen with, with Vietnamese as well. It's just ingredients, flavors flavor profiles um, and also like quintessential dishes like bun mi for me would be perfect because Americans love sandwiches. Uh, Americans love grilled meats. At least start with, you know, uh, Chinese pork uh, barbecue. Start with something simple like that. So the Lee's chain, I think, is ingenious and it has spread around where Vietnamese are and also copycats. So, of course, San Jose, 
uh, Little Saigon, Houston, New Orleans, you have that with, you know, those those big populations, Virginia as well. Now you need someone to take that concept into the American Midwest. And that's how you start dotting it. And, and, and one thing about the American consumer, they might be racist, but they do tr like to try new styles of food. Um, Americans might not like Mexicans, but they love Mexican food and they'll assimilate one dish. And then they think, okay, what's next? I mean, you see it with sriracha. Yes, sriracha is Thai. Thai made popular by a, a Vietnamese man, you know, in the, in, in the 626 and all that, which is very Chinese. But now you're seeing Americans thinking, okay, sriracha is cool, but what's next? That's why you've seen this boom in popularity in chili crisp, you know? So slowly but surely, that's more Pan-Asian, of course, but slowly but surely you start picking up these things that mainstream dishes and also gets Americans interested in what's next. You know, this, this idea of California, 626, Orange County, LA, we have McDonald's, In-N-Out, Cars Jr. We have the birthplace of so many of the most iconic brands in the U.S. coming out of, you know, the Southern California region. And I am always saying this now to, it's not like a controversial statement that I'm comfortable with, but I, I do feel like this is my opinion. And I think that Orange County Vietnamese food is probably the best in the entire world. And I have a yeah. lot of reasons for that. And I'd love to, I mean, I we could get into it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about what I what I just said. Well, I what I love about Orange County Vietnamese cuisine is the ubiquity of it, that's starters, but also that it reflects Orange County. So yes, you're going to have the great produce, you're going to have the great quality of meat. But you're also going to have Latinos in the back kitchen cooking a lot of these Vietnamese meals. You're going to have in some places um, Viet, uh, Latino servers going to, you know, serving food and in some cases speaking flawless speaking Vietnamese. Vietnamese. Yeah, flawless, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, it. oh, was it Quan? There's a famous Central Vietnamese restaurant. That's my favorite restaurant. Okay. Yeah. Oh, God. I have not been there in years. I got to go favorite. back there again. Oh, yeah. man. It's so good. So good delicious and it was famous also among my vietnamese friends because like oh yeah there'd be latino servers they take your order in vietnamese they joke with you in vietnamese that to me is such an orange county experience mm -hmm. those those mergers of culture and then of course you have the places right on the border of santana and uh westminster so right i'm thinking or and garden grove so i'm thinking of harbor and 17th bolson harbor where you have uh the menus in english Vietnamese and in Spanish, where the goik one is uh, advertised as burritos, and they're and they're also cheaper because the Vietnamese owners also know, like you know, we're we're, we're our clientele is going to be working class Mexican, so let's just keep it at affordable rates. So you see this like this humanity of the intersection between cultures. But then, as I said, all you know, to, with Francis, um, you also have second generation Vietnamese Americans and even third generation Vietnamese Americans thinking, okay. We have uh, our parents' generation Vietnamese food, which is awesome. Let's try let's try doing other things as well. Like after his ice cream, just you know, putting ice cream into freaking uh, a, a, a donut 
that might seem like so not Vietnamese, but I also see it completely Vietnamese because <laughs> I mean, you connect with like the Cambodian Chinese uh, who ran all those donut shops with the pink boxes growing up. You also see like just Vietnamese kids, all, all kids in the United States eventually learn how to love fried food. And also Vietnamese have the fried colors, you know, uh, that goes with your uh, morning porridge and all of that. Um, and then to put in ice cream, first starting with like vanilla and chocolate, but then, you know, working in like green tea ice cream, jasmine ice cream and all of that. And the afters guys, they created their own empire. God, I saw an afters in L.A. Where did I see it in L.A.? Pasadena. Pasadena. Not Pasadena. It was like Los Angeles proper. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, no, but I saw it and it's a newer one. But I'm like, good this for one. you guys. Yeah. Good for freaking yeah. you Andy. guys. <laughs> yeah andy yeah exactly andy. good for andy good for mm -hmm. all that crew like you are pushing the idea and then you know you continue doing it of course the boba shops you have like the next generation fuzz spots next generation uh you know going guan and all of that stuff and you're like you're building it as like i said earlier like you it's now it's a perfectly normal question on a cold day anywhere in orange county to say hey let's go get some pho 20 years ago, you'd have to explain what pho is. Yeah. Now you just go and get care. it. And and so what you're seeing in Orange County with Vietnamese food is my ideal of how Vietnamese food is going to spread across the United States by just it being a part of life, not being kind of like Mexican food. Like, yeah, it's not quote unquote originally American, but now it's so embedded in our lives that it's just part of what you eat. You know, I uh, have that theory that it's the best because in order to like thrive and survive in Orange County, you have to be the best of the best because otherwise you're going to just go out of business because there's so yeah. many restaurants in, in 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 Orange County. And that being said, I'm not discounting that Vietnam has amazing restaurants too. And that food scene in in you know Saigon is is blowing up. You know, it's it's That's going cool. crazy. It's 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 out of control. You know, it's really uh, an amazing place to have have uh, food. But at the same time, it's like there's a head start here. Like I think when I went to Cuba a few years ago, I felt like Cuba, Cuban food in Cuba is not good because of the lack of resource, the lack of training, the lack of, you know, all this sort of like uh, ability to reach out to the, to the world and, 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 and aggregate information to figure out how to make these best dishes. And I think Orange County has had 50 years of the best of the best constantly reworking their formulas and you have, you know, restaurants like, you know, Kristen Wynn's uh, Garlic and Chives. Mm -hmm. And you have all of these like key concepts, you know, they're, they just have been now um, at the apex of, of Vietnamese, you know, really complex and, and, and complex meeting like the simplicity of like mom and, you know, your, your, your mom's cooking all coming in and, and just like coming in clutch. Yeah. And not only that, you're dealing with the other cultures that you encounter. So shout out to the late great break of dawn with D Win, like one of my all time favorite restaurants. And he's still doing his like 25 courses for 15 people at, at his house in Orange every couple of weeks. But here's a you know, here's a guy who was a refugee gets trained, gets gets put in charge of the Ritz Carlton here in Orange County, gets all these traditions, starts his own restaurant takes the dishwasher of, uh, you know, from break of, uh, rather from the Ritz Carlton alongside with him to be a sous chef. And so they're serving all this food. That's like, you could see the Vietnamese roots of it, 
but also it's just it's his own style of cooking and it's absolutely it was and is absolutely delicious and it's such it's just pure orange county there's no way else of putting it but like d had that access like if he had yeah. stayed in vietnam he would not probably had the right. access that he had today and he has as you put it you have to be the best of the best to succeed in orange county especially on especially on the higher end of the restaurant scale and so here here's where the real here's where the real ones succeed yeah wait is d still cooking oh is yeah he doing yeah he, do, he got, does his pop-ups uh-huh oh i got i i reached out to him a few years ago when i when i was starting and you know we we're going back and forth and i just lost that communication i because his story about his son mm -hmm. you know berlin and, and yeah all of that yeah is is phenomenal and um yeah what a what a, a treasure and you know there was write-ups about him and and i remember you know god i gotta i gotta get him get him on the podcast oh, totally hit him up yeah you know um today we we covered quite a bit and mm -hmm. i um i really appreciate you coming on to the the podcast and there's so many beautiful parallels within our communities and religion and food and all of these wonderful things and i hope i can have you back on uh, in the future because i just feel like we just scratched the surface Oh, no, anytime. Thank you so much uh, for allowing me to be on here and talk about food and just a little bit of everything. And, you know, we got to you got to take me to your favorite Bansil place because Bansil is like probably my favorite Vietnamese dish of them all. I don't know what is it about it, but like, oh, my God, it's so good. Thanks again, Gustavo. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.